welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and sustaining community for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tecumloops Te Shwetmuk within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmuk Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And off the top, I just want to acknowledge and affirm the news out of Williams Lake last week. These reckonings never get less painful, and this road to reconciliation that I really do hope we are on never gets easier. Given the news out of Williams Lake, I want to take a moment to say that I hope that members of our community have read the excellent letter sent to the president this week from the Decolonization, Reconciliation, and Indigenization Committee of TRUFA. I'll link to that in the show notes in case you haven't. The ongoing conversation about anti-Indigenous racism here at TRU can't be seen as separate or unrelated to the news from Kamloops Indian Residential School or the news from Williams Lake this week. I'm going to take a breath before we get into the show this week. So, friends, with all that context in place, I've been thinking a lot about self-care. And I've been thinking about how we tend to treat self-care as this commercialization object, right? It's like, if you buy exactly the right bath bomb, you will somehow be able to deal with the microaggressions in your workplace. Yeah, probably not true. But I've actually been thinking about self-care a lot because, and I'm sorry to do this to those of you who don't play and don't care and are sick of hearing about it, but I'm a big Wordle fan. If you're not playing Wordle, I'm sorry. If you're not playing Wordle because you've never heard about it, I'm delighted to introduce it to you. There's a link in the show notes, but it's a really simple daily word game. And uh, you just have to guess a six-letter word. And the the rules are pretty straightforward. Uh, It's easy to figure out once you get playing. If a letter turns yellow, it's the right letter in the wrong place. If a letter turns green, it's the right letter in the right place. Wordle has become an important part of easing into my day. Sometimes I play it lying in bed before I face getting up. Sometimes I play it first thing at my desk before I face my email inbox. Wordle is challenging, but not hard. And I think obviously that depends on your status as a native language speaker or your fluency with the language, your vocabulary, right? There's all kinds of layered uh, privileges and context that shape whether or not Wordle is easy for you. Wordle is pretty okay for me. You know, I get my Wordle in usually four guesses. That's my average. There's something about that little success at the beginning of the day that has become very important to me. And it's a much more affirming kind of self-care than, you know, maybe those things we can buy at the store. The reason I've been thinking about Wordle and self-care is because Wordle is this form of self-care that's also learning, right? I'm 
teasing my brain, I'm challenging it in interesting ways, and I'm forcing myself to access vocabulary in my brain that maybe I haven't thought of in a long time. And I'm thinking about why this one little learning experience, this one little brain teaser, has become such a phenomenon. Now, There's a lot of things that the person who created Wordle does very cleverly, including making it easy to share Wordle. Although, just a note, those tweets, if you're on Twitter and you see tweets about Wordle, those aren't very screen reader friendly. So maybe think about a different way of sharing your Wordle score with the world. Aside from the kind of viralness of Wordle, I think it captures a really critical concept in teaching and learning. I know, I know, but stick with me. And that is the appropriate challenge, right? Wordle wouldn't be addictive. It wouldn't be engrossing if it was super easy. And it also wouldn't be engrossing if it was impossible, right? Wordle hits us at that sweet spot. And I've been thinking a lot about how we might adapt that to our own practice. Like, what is your classroom Wordle? (laughs) What is the thing that you can bring to your students at the beginning of each class? Or what is the thing that you can bring to your practice? You know, whether it's workshops or meeting with students, what's that little thing that takes five minutes, hits an appropriate challenge level, and gives a sense of success or mastery? Because if you can hit that in your subject area, holy cow, what a powerful thing for students. What a powerful thing for learners. I like Wordle because I like to play with words. What's the sociology equivalent? What's the engineering equivalent? What's the chemistry equivalent? I know nothing about chemistry, as you'll know as I start to say, like, is there a chemical equation for your students that hits that right balance of being eminently solvable and yet just challenging enough to take a whole five minutes? I'm just offering that up here because when I think about the worldwide phenomenon that Wordle has become, I think there's got to be something that we can take from it as teachers and as learners to think about how we offer the same kind of appropriate challenge to our students. Okay, Wordle aside, (laughs) today on the show, I'm joined by Noah Arney. I'm excited to talk to Noah because I don't know a lot about career and experiential learning, which is the area he works in. And I really want to know more. So yeah, I'm going to let Noah take it from here. So today on the show, I am here with Noah Arney. Noah, could you let folks know what your role is on campus and where they might find you if they were to go looking for you? Yes. Uh, so today I'm not on campus, but normally I'm over in Old Main, uh, just down the hall, and we are in current experiential learning, which is when you're walking down the hall away from the Starbucks, you'll see us on the right-hand side. So tell me, as if I know nothing about anything, what does queer and experiential learning do? Yeah, so we do, I'll shorten it to sort of four things. So the first thing, and sort of the the thing I work on is career development. Then we also do work integrated learning. And then we also help students build connections around campus. And we also teach courses. So what that looks like, um, the career development, what I do, is primarily around career advising. So that's working with students one-on-one for career planning, resumes, cover letters, interview prep, job search, labor market information, that sort of thing. Um, And doing guest lectures, seminars, or workshops. So whether I'm working with uh, in another faculty member's class, or if I'm working with a group from a certain program, 
uh, outside of class, or if it's a general one, that sort of is how we term the different things. Then we also run different events. So we run job fair, we run networking events, employer information sessions, uh, and we also help students access different mentorship opportunities. The work integrated learning is the co-op ed part. That's what a lot of people think of when they think about current experiential learning um, is the co-op program. So that is helping students to have these really great authentic experiences connected to their curriculum, connected to where they want to go once they finish schooling, um, and really help students to develop those skills in a new opportunity, a new way. So that's what the co-op ed is. And then we've got the experiential learning, and that is built around connecting students with different experiential learning opportunities. So that could be uh, an experiential learning course or a capstone course or connecting them with service learning or undergrad research, conferences. And then we also have some people who specifically focus on connecting Indigenous students or connecting students who need accessibility support. And that's sort of the big part of what we do. And then, of course, there's the courses that we teach, but those are all interwoven into the other parts. It's a big portfolio of stuff. And while you were talking, all I could think was this area must have been really, really impacted by the events of the last two years, hey? Like, whether it's being able to connect students to community or opportunities or, you know, jobs and the economy's contraction or weird funk that it's in, like, what's it been like navigating that space and helping students to navigate that space? It's been very interesting. So I've been with TRU now for a year. And before that, I was with the Career Services Department over at Mount Royal University. Uh, And so in both of them, I was able to have the interesting experience of doing all of this online and working with employers and talking with them about what it looks like for this all to be online. So some things transitioned easily, uh, some things transitioned not so easily. All of the work integrated learning positions in the summer of 2020, suddenly they all just disappeared. And then in like June, um, a bunch of them came back. And so everybody's scrambling to get students into summer positions for work integrated learning. And it was a very strange experience. Uh, that's all sort of been smoothed over now. Everything is a little bit back to normal as employers who can have students working remotely figured out how that works. So it looks it's a little bit better now uh, for the work integrated learning side. It's hard enough for people with a lifetime of career experience and inter-office and interpersonal relations to navigate that transition to a fully online workplace. I imagine, I mean, do you have to do a fair amount of helping students just understand a different kind of working environment and what the expectations might be? Like, I feel like if I was a student going into that space, I'd be pretty nervous. Yeah, that's actually something that we've all added into our what the different universities call their co-op prep courses. So here it's Career Management Co-op 1000. We've added in an entire section on what online work looks like, um, how to do, how to be able to do this, how to develop the same kind of relationships and connections in a virtual workplace, and what that can look like, which probably we should have been doing beforehand. And I know that some people already were, and they were, you know, ter- terming it things like the future of work, but it's here now. It's not the future anymore. Yeah. Um, and so it's a bit of a different, a different thing, but it's the same ideas just with a a new context. So that's sort of how we work with students around it, um, helping them to to still do the things that they needed to do before, build relationships, learn skills, um, be able to reflect on what they have done and see what that could look like in the future. 
I guess like any interpersonal skill set, there's some folks who feel more natural in this environment and there's some folks who feel really at sea. And I guess we're all navigating that, but you've got kind of this front row seat to seeing how the next generation of people moving into the workforce is feeling about it. Do you have a sense of just like how they're doing? just on an affective level, like how it's going? That sort of depends on how comfortable they already were with Mm. existing in this sort of virtual world. And I think it's a little bit different. Um, I remember over 10 years ago, people brought up this whole digital natives thing and, oh, this new generation, Mm. talking about our generation, um, we're going to be so technologically savvy. And I'm looking, was... (laughs) <laughs> 12 years ago, when this all came out, I'm looking yeah. around at everybody around me thinking, are they seeing the same group of people that I'm around? <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mm-hmm. think now we've all realized that, no, it's not just an innate thing that a generation <laughs> has tech skills. It's um, some people are going to develop much better skills in, in certain areas than other people. Uh, but more importantly, it's all about how you interact with people and how you see connections forming. Right now we're chatting online uh, via Mm -hmm. the system. It's a little bit different than if we're meeting in person, but we've got a whole generation for whom this kind of chatting online is a normal thing. And most people are used to this. That doesn't mean they prefer it. And I think that's the distinction is that there's a group of students now who are going into the workforce and they understand that this is going to be common And they've all done this in some way, but it doesn't mean that they're going to find it easy, and it doesn't mean that they're going to find it the best way to go. And I think that's what we need to remember, is that um, individuals are individual. You can't just say, this whole group is going to be like this. I'm I'm pausing here because it's so interesting. I spend a lot of time, obviously, talking to people who are enthusiastic about podcasting as a medium, and even amongst people who obviously can tolerate the sound of their own voice for like long periods of time while they edit. Um, There's a real range. You know, I guested on a podcast the other week and they had video turned on so we could see each other's reactions. And I was totally thrown because I am so used to a kind of audio mode where I have to signal my responses through voice. And suddenly we had this other layer. And, you know, the person I was recording with was like, oh, I'm just testing it out. I'm not sure what it's like. And I was like, this is a weird experience. <laughs> um, but I know that there's lots of people who vastly prefer to have that video mediation. I like the intimacy of a sort of pure audio experience. And, and I guess it was just a, one of those moments where I was like, you know, everyone is navigating these spaces differently and everybody is defining sort of what's normal or what's um, closer to their normal in their own ways. And and yeah, I think we have this assumption that like capital Y, capital P, young people <laughs> all already have like the skills to navigate this space and they all really love it. And, you know, I, I mean, there's there's no reason to believe that's true. We all didn't love past ways of interacting at work. We all had different levels of of comfort and success, right? And I think something to think about that as well is there's always been people who preferred text. There's always been people who preferred face-to-face. There's always been people who preferred making a phone call to someone. And I, I don't think it's changing. It's just that we've got a couple new ways to do it. This isn't that much different than talking on the phone between the two of us right now. If we added video, that makes it a little bit different. It's different both from talking on the phone and it's different from being face-to-face. So we're sort of adding new ways of doing it. And it isn't going to be everybody's preference. 
some people might prefer the virtual equivalent of sending a memo over to someone else rather than making a phone call. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because even though, you know, you say that this is like a phone call and it is, but I would still... Like I view a phone call as a personal attack. Right? <laughs> we talked about that on positioning. Twitter. <laughs> we did. Yeah. Well, this is a funny thing, Noah. Like you and I have never met in person. Nope. We've interacted lots on Twitter. We've exchanged a few emails. Now we're having this interaction, but we've never actually met in person. Yeah. It's a it's a strange world. Um, and how people, <laughs> but that's the thing is that people will find the the way that they feel most comfortable. And I think that that's that's one of the things that we need to look at for it is that just because somebody is able to do something doesn't mean they're going to prefer it. And just because somebody prefers it doesn't mean it's going to be the way that the work they do is best done. Well, and it's interesting because this is all a level of nuance that is absolutely not part of the face-to-face or online discussion (laughs) about teaching and learning right now, right? Which is that some tasks and skills are best done in different modalities And yeah, that your preference doesn't actually necessarily map on, you know, we all know like learning styles has been debunked, et cetera, et cetera. And and the reality is your learning preference and the best modality, they actually have no relationship to each other, right? (laughs) Like they are completely separate variables. Yes. Um, And that's, that happens in a lot of things, right? Like there's, in the career development sphere, there's a lot of research around um, personality, and for, for a long time, it was, you know, people with personalities like this tend to go into field, career fields like this. Um, and then they started doing research about people who had done that and people who hadn't done that. And they found that it didn't matter. Um, your How much you like your field had basically nothing to do with whether it aligned in some way with your personality. Um, there were It all had to do with uh, the relationships you built in the field and how you connected with the people who were in charge of you or the people who were supporting the work you did, all of that. It had a lot more to do with that than it had to do with personality. And so it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? It's that we think, oh, well, if you're like this, you should do this. But there's so many other parts of it. There's so much nuance to um, what works beyond just preference um, and even beyond... Um, what has been done. Yeah, we really like boxes, right? Like we like to explain things through, I came up through grad school um, in a time of great popularity of Myers-Briggs typing. It was like- Oh, it's my favorite BuzzFeed quiz. Well, it's like, I don't know. It all just seems like one step away from astrology on a certain level, right? Like this, these sort of predictive maps. Hmm. Yes, I guess, I mean- they tell you things about yourself and they help you understand how you may prefer to do things. But I don't know. It always sent an odd message to me like, you know, this type excels in grad school. And I'm like, okay, but I'm already here. So what do I do now? <laughs> and it's an interesting thing. Um, it is really, uh, I love Myers-Briggs. I think it's amazing. But it's also not useful. Um, so I'm, I'm going to explain that. <laughs> so it is a great way of... Filling out a questionnaire and then being told what other people who fill out the questionnaire (laughs) kind of are like if they filled it out the same way you did. And that's about (laughs) as useful as it gets. But what it can be used for is, okay, great. Now, what does that, what do you think about that? Because it's the, what do you think about that question? That's the actually important one. Uh, You could fill out any BuzzFeed quiz about what your Disney princess is and then answer, (laughs) okay, well, what do you think about that? You know, is yeah. if you're a Disney princess's Belle, do you actually agree with that? What parts of that do you like? What parts of that do you disagree with? And I think that's a really more interesting and important question to ask 
it's like a journey towards introspection, right? It's like, here's the first step, which feels very scientific, maybe, and very comfortable for people who like to fill in Scantron sheets, but maybe <laughs> don't like introspection, right? And then the next step is, yeah, like, does that actually feel appropriate? Um, it's it's something I think about a lot with horoscopes. I'm an Aries, and I've never read a horoscope that seems to reflect how I actually feel like I navigate the world. And yeah, it's like, well, now I want to have a conversation with someone about that. Like, what does that mean? Am I just contrary? Am I just obstinate? Or is there something here, you know? I'd love it if you could tell me a little bit about how career and experiential learning and the work that your team does, how it integrates with other areas of campus. Like, I know that you guys have a sort of don't cancel that class. Yes. Thing where you go in and talk to students. And I I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about those kinds of pieces and how they might um, be of interest to folks listening who don't know a lot about your team and what you do. Of course. Yeah. So we do a lot of guest lecturing. So for example, just the other day, I went into a class for uh, the healthcare assistant program. And yeah, it was really great. And I got to talk with them about um, what it takes to develop a resume and what the point of that is. And I get to talk about Uh, some great things that maybe give some students flashbacks to first-year English. Um, But we get to talk about things like genre and conventions and and what that means and helping them to understand what the process of the resume development is like and what the purpose of it is. And hopefully that means uh, my whole point is to not need them to come back to me every time they need to make something. Uh, There's a certain point at which they can do it all on their own. If I haven't done my job right, then they're going to be coming back to me every semester to improve their resume. And so that's where a lot of the guest lecturing is, is is trying to make sure that they get the concepts and the ideas so that they can develop one of these application documents that really shows who they are and gets across the way that they talk and the way that they explain what they have done in the past. And so that's a little bit about the the majority of what the guest lecturing happens to be is usually around resumes, because usually when we get Uh, When somebody says, hey, can you come in and talk to my class? It's around resumes. Um, But we also come in and talk about things like networking, understanding your labor market, understanding what goal setting could look like, understanding how the class that this is or the program that this is connects to what happens after the university experience. Does that generally look like going into the workforce? Does that generally look like going into grad school? Does that generally look like one than the other? What's the path and and how do you navigate that? And so we have a lot of different ones that we do for different programs, depending on sort of what it's going to look like. And um, if it's going to be something that is inside somebody else's class, if it's going to be something that is part of one of the student affairs um, groups where we're doing it with a group of students from a broad spectrum of programs, uh, if we're doing it in conjunction with a different event, if we're doing it with, you know, say the Um, We do a lot with the master MBA students where we do a series of seminars for them to help them understand what the labor market looks like and and how flexible this is and and how that ties back into what they need to be focusing on in their MBA program. A lot of different options there that we have that we we offer for students and uh, where we work with a number of different faculties and a number of different programs. If a faculty member is thinking about booking you, how does that work? You send us an email. Um, usually it's either to uh, Larry Isles or to Tara Bond or to myself. And um, 
if we're not the one who does it, we connect you with the person who does, and they will uh, talk with you about what you want, uh, how you want it to connect in with your course, how you want it to connect in with the program they're in, and, and then we'll develop that based on it. And then we'll either come in in person or virtually, depending on the model that your course is, and uh, take over the class for a session and give the students a little taste of career development. Oh, that's cool. Um, is there anything you wish students were sort of prepped for ahead of time before you go into the session? Or can you kind of roll with any <laughs> any scenario? Uh, usually we can roll with any scenario. Uh, but the, the big thing is getting students to question why they chose the path they're on. That's how a lot of the career management courses that we teach start, is questioning why are you here, not just in a co-op program and not just in the academic program you're in, but why did you come to university? What was your thought about your future that you thought that having a university experience was going to get you there? Because it's those touchstones back to that that really help students to understand what it is they value in themselves and what it is they want to develop in themselves. And that really helps a lot with the work that I do with students. Gosh, I bet it's also just so good for personal development. Like, mm -hmm. uh, so many of our students never actually get the opportunity to ask that <laughs> question, right? I remember teaching at the college. I, I had this really eye-opening conversation with a student my, I don't know, my second semester there. You know, I'm I'm all eager about first year writing and compositions, you know, gets me excited. And I'm having this conversation, the student came up to me after class and she said, I just want you to know that I'm probably not going to come to class very much. That has nothing to do with you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is a weird conversation. And she said, you know, I'm just here. I told my parents I would take eight courses and then they'll let me go into the hairdressing program I actually want to go into. Hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. She's like, so, you know, I'm really just killing time. And I, I was very young at the time and I did not know how to respond to that. And in retrospect, what I wish I had said was, that's cool. Take eight really different courses because not everybody gets the opportunity to just explore and experiment. And you probably think your parents are being really jerky because you just want to get into that program you want to get into. Um, and they're asking you to just stop and think for a second. So few of our students get the chance to, I don't know, ask that question, like, why am I here? And is this the right program for me? Yes. The number of students I work with after first year, and I start talking with them about the electives they've taken, and they say, oh, well, no, I've only been taking the, the main courses in my major. And I'm thinking, there's 30 classes you need to take outside of your major. <laughs> yeah. Most of those are at the 1000 level. Like you need to be taking some of those early so you actually have an idea of of the breadth that you get to see like programs are designed with a purpose. But I don't think we talk about that with students enough, right? Like Yeah. I think that they show up and we're like take these courses and get this credential and there's very little there's just very little time and space to have the conversation about like, why? Why do we think it's a great idea for you to take a philosophy course? Why do we think it's a great idea for you to take a math course? How does that help you, right, in, in a meaningful way? Like, we just, I don't know. On the one hand, I think we spend a lot of time complaining about students not, uh, like, connecting or not feeling a part of the process, but then we don't really trust them with much information, though, either, do we? It's one of the reasons why I actually like 
recommended program plans where there's like a PDF that a student can just go onto the website and go to their program site and there's, you know, oh, hey, you're a history student. Well, here's some recommended program plan. You know, these are the courses you have to take and they're slotted in and they're spread over the four years. And here's all the times when you can take other classes because usually it reminds students, hey, you should be taking these other electives early because they are actually going to impact the core courses. The things you learn in that is going to give you the breadth that you need to do well at the later courses. And I, I get the feeling that we don't get that across to students early. We usually get that across when they realize mm. often after year one that they should <laughs> probably have a plan uh, and they go to see academic advising. I was supposed to take <laughs> another English? What? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's. I used to work exclusively with uh, science students. And the number of students where I would be talking with them in year two and mention, okay, so, you know, you took your your first year English class, of course, and so that's going to help you with this class you're taking next semester. I said, oh, no, I'm taking that uh, after after next year. Thinking, you're taking a first year English mm-hmm. class in year four? Because they put it off because it has such a bad reputation. I taught that course for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that I know is that, you know, if you spend, um, oh gosh, I don't know, 30 or 40 years scaring students, uh, at a certain point, they avoid taking your course. <laughs> and the number of times I would have students get to the end of academic writing with me and be like, oh, I really wish I had taken this in year one. And I'm going, yeah, that's why we tell you to do that. (laughs) Okay. But that's exactly it. It's like, I'm going to put off this thing that feels useless and I don't care about because I don't know if we give students enough information. And I don't think the, I don't think that those kinds of courses, whether it's math or English or, you know, sort of basic level science, I don't think the way we present them in high school makes it clear what the transition is going to be to university and why it might be useful to do early, you know? Yeah. And I think this is where my colleagues over at the academic advising are so important. Whenever faculty are working with a student and it comes up that they haven't talked to advising yet, that should be the point where you say, oh, well, here's how you make that appointment and and get them to do that right away. Because the earlier they make that appointment, the more times they meet with advising, um, the better they understand their own program. Absolutely. And the more likely they are to, you know, all those things that really matter to students, finish on time, get the credits when you need the credits, not be surprised two months before graduation. Like, that's all about having a really close relationship with advising. Mm -hmm. Well, Noah, I am so glad you came to chat today, not just because we got to talk about BuzzFeed quizzes, but (laughs) also because of this larger conversation about, you know, breadth and, and programs and what we can do to help students. Um, is there anything else you want to share with the community about the work you do or how to get a hold of you or any of that good stuff? Just that we we really love getting to work with faculties across campus. Um, if you're looking at your course and you're thinking, oh, well, you know, this is, I'd love for students to be able to think about how this assignment could impact their future career. Have one of us come in and, and chat with students about the labor market options. Have us come in and talk about how to actually identify potential career paths. University faculty are really great at helping students with identifying paths into grad school, and I think that's amazing. But sometimes it's a little bit harder for them to identify the the paths into uh, direct into employment, depending on the program that the students are in. But that's one of the ways where we can we can help students to do that research and learn to do that research so that they can continue growing their knowledge of what they could be doing in the future. Awesome. Such necessary work. Thanks so much for joining me today, Noah. I really appreciated our chat. 
Well, thanks for having me on. So that is it for season two, episode 16 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip. And maybe I just have vocabulary on the brain, but I've been thinking a lot about the simple and maybe even radical power of a course glossary. Do you keep one in your class? There's mechanisms to do this through Moodle um, using the database tool. I like the idea of a course glossary that is student-created. So key terms and concepts that students think are important. This can be a really good review type game, you know, asking students to identify two or three key terms and then in small groups, uh, defining them together, giving a source for their definition. You can assign nominal participation marks to it. The power of a course glossary, and why I'm saying it's like kind of radical, um, is that it makes explicit some knowledge that tends to be implicit. We don't often stop to ask what words our students are struggling with. And sometimes we can be surprised. You know, I've told the story on the show before about how it was second year before I figured out that a syllabus and a course outline were the same thing. (laughs) There's somewhere where a glossary could have helped me out, a university glossary. Those things exist in our courses too. And we tend to think of that as like a first year issue. But oftentimes what happens is students get into the second, third, and fourth years of their courses. And now not only is their vocabulary they haven't mastered, but now they're scared to ask because now it feels like stuff they should already know. So making the course glossary a kind of safe space where suggestions are welcome from all levels within the discipline can be really valuable there. It's also useful for students who are language learners to have a resource to go back to regularly where they can rely on the spelling and definitions of keywords. We all benefit from being reminded of what matters and what's important. And as instructors, it's helpful to know what it is our students are identifying as important because it can help you to figure out what the holes are. Like what aren't they seeing that they should see? So yeah, super concrete really tiny, but this week, again, I guess it's the wordle on the brain. I'm thinking about course glossaries. Maybe you might offer that as an option in your classes, or maybe you need to save it for next term, but think about what a course glossary could offer your students. And that is it for me. I've already solved wordle today, and now I've recorded this essay, so I guess I have to go and do my job, which, yeah, you know, (laughs) most days is pretty okay. Until next time, I'm rooting for you. I hope you're doing well. May your wordle always be solved in less than six guesses. And we'll talk soon. Bye-bye.